Welcome to Blue Talks Podcast, where we present compelling narratives about entrepreneurs, innovators, and dreamers. So my sister just texted me now telling me how much she's missed me. <laughs> well, I know what she truly misses, so I open my Steinbeck IBTC app and say to it, Hey, I want to transfer 5,000 naira to Funke. Done. And my post just asked me what the highest price stock is right now. Huh. I can't fold my handle, so I open my Stambic IBTC app from the comfort of my home and figure it out. Got it! You be the hero. Upgrade and take control of your finances with the new Stambic IBTC mobile app. Download or upgrade your Stambic IBTC mobile app on Google Play or Apple Store to experience seamless voice banking, stockbroking, insurance, and more from the safety of your home. From your one-stop financial services partner, Stambic IBTC. It can be. Blue Talks, brought to you by Stambic IBTC. Welcome to today's edition of Blue Talks. On today's edition, we'll be speaking with a serial entrepreneur, serial in- investor in the Nigerian startup space. And we'd like to get his thoughts on what to do or how he decides which startup to back and what other investors might watch out for. Um, but before we go on, um, I'd like to give a brief synopsis of what the global startup industry is like and by extension to Nigeria. The global startup industry is estimated to be creating around $3 trillion in value which is more than the GDP of some top 15 global economies. The wind of change has spread to the African continent with Nigeria as one of the biggest beneficiaries. And over the last 10 years, we've seen an influx of some serious capital through investments in startups. Some of these have materialized in very bountiful exits as well. Now, these exits have bolstered investors' confidence in startups and enriched some founders in the process. In addition, the last few years, I've seen few Nigerian tech firms attain the much-coveted unicorn status. Uh, unicorn startups is um, essentially when a company attains the $1 billion valuation, pretty much. I think that's about the simplest definition for it. And um, this has further inspired several local and international investors in taking the Nigerian startup scene even more seriously. This was evidenced by the recent report that Nigeria attracted the most funding in Africa in 2020. I'd like to introduce to you Olumide Shiyombo. He is the CEO of Blue Chip Technology. And like I said earlier on, he's also a serial investor. One of the go-to guys if for startups looking for investment in Nigeria. Welcome to Blue Talks of Day. Hi, Tyro. Thanks for having me. Great. Um, so let's dive right into it. Can we meet you? Can our audience meet you? Who's Olumide Shoyombo? All right. Um, Olumide Shoyombo is, uh, is an entrepreneur who, who started out his entrepreneur journey in in 2008, uh, when I founded, uh, co-founded a company called Blue Chip Technologies um, as an enterprise technology company building out solutions around data warehouse, business intelligence, enterprise applications, and the like. Uh, grown that company now to a company with about 150 people in several African countries, um, partnering with some of the biggest software OEMs. Um, but then in 2014, um, looking at our ecosystem, I started actively investing in in um, interesting B2C type platform type startups. Probably invested not of 35 companies since then. Um, some of the notable ones you probably know in the market today in the fintech space exited some of them. And yes, I'm constantly looking to back to back new new entrepreneurs and solid entrepreneurs building interesting things in, in Africa. 
Thanks for that brief um, introduction, Olimide. I like the sound of your modesty, but um, backing 35 companies is a lot. What drove you to that and what gives you the confidence that, you know, you're backing the right horse? Like I mentioned, I was running, a, or I've been running an enterprise technology company. And if you look at the enterprise tech space, um, even if I look at Blue Chip in 2014, maybe if we're doing about seven, eight million dollars in revenue at the time, well, you see that your revenue is concentrated amongst two, three clients, right? So you lose one of them, you see it hit your bottom line immediately. And so we started thinking of how do we invest in other B2C type startups and platform type startups where it's one-to-many type relationships where you can build a huge user base, even if a couple, you lose a couple of customers or the churn, you can quickly build, build back on that. So how do we build out that huge base that is not based on relationship-based selling, but more platform-type-based selling. And um, obviously, our market was getting very, very interesting at the time in 2014. Um, there was the whole um, Yaba movement with what CC Hub had started building out there. There was the whole interest of even young people in, in technology. And then obviously, huge penetration of smartphones, advent of um, increased and reduced reduction in price of data. And if you start looking at other ecosystems, when those things start to happen, you understand that an ecosystem is being built and is, is starting to take off, right? So I wanted to be part of that journey, bring my experience to be here, obviously bring some funding to be here to help grow, to help grow the ecosystem. And that's really how, how my journey started in investing in companies. Great stuff, great stuff. Thanks, um, thanks, and obviously that means um, blue chippers must be doing well for, for you to have looked in that direction. So we're, we're grateful. But putting in things into perspective, if we're to look at the Nigerian startup space versus other markets, because there's always this comparison, and I always say it's never like for like. It's not apples for apples. Some of these other markets are a bit more mature than ours is. And sure. how would you? put them side by side if, if you were to do that comparison? Okay. I think the first thing to look at is what makes up an ecosystem, right? Um, is around key pillars around knowledge and innovation, um, people, funding, and obviously markets, right? And um, if you look at the Nigerian ecosystem and how it has evolved, um, at least the tech ecosystem, how it's evolved over the years, um, you can compare that ecosystem with some other ecosystems that are more mature. If you want to look at the Indian market, I like to look at the Indian markets a lot because I see that we have some very, very similar demographics around the dense population. Um, we have also a, um, a market of young, very young people who are seeking to learn some huge level of poverty in many areas, in certain areas, and people trying to jump over that, um, jump over that. And you start seeing some similarities about maybe where India was maybe six, seven years ago, eight years ago, and where Nigeria is today. So you, you look at that lag between the two ecosystems and you can start seeing um, some similarities um, between when where they were eight years ago and where we are now. And you can start seeing, it starts telling you know, some telling things that need to be built even in our ecosystem. So for example, um, there are certain companies that just have to exist in every ecosystem. Um, an e-commerce player would always exist. In niche, niche e-commerce players would exist. Someone solving in, solving payments problems would exist. People doing different things in the financial space, in unbundling, 
you know, bundling certain things, the banks, they feel the banks aren't doing well. If you look at an ed tech player would also exist. You can look at that, those markets and look at our own ecosystem and you can start doing the matching of what is really required in, in each space. So I think we, it's still very early days for us. Um, I still say it's, it's day zero. Um, we are starting to see um, exits happen in our markets, um, which would obviously mean more of that funding can come back into the market into empowering people. You are seeing a lot of learning because you are saying that people who have worked as product managers in different companies are now going ahead to start their own companies. Um, I've invested in ex-founders of Paystack who've gone ahead to found their own companies, ex-founders of Jumia and so on and so forth. So you ex-product ex managers of in Jumia and so forth who, or ex-employees who've now gone ahead to build their own companies from the learnings over the years. And then obviously you're saying, oh, this won't matter without talent, right? I remember in 2014, 2013, a company that needed to build anything would probably have to go to India or look for developers outside the shores of the country. But with um, how things are moving with talent, you're seeing a lot of talent um, being built here. A lot of our own developers are even, are even going out of the country, as they would say, Japa, to, <laughs> to run, to build in other ecosystems. And we're churning out that talent. We still need to do a lot more. Because, like I said, the ecosystem is really being is really going to be built based on on the talents available. Thanks for that. I mean, it's a good thing you mentioned. I mean, interesting thing you mentioned um, about talent. There is this constant debate about lack of talent in Nigeria and how some people believe talent should be seen as a commodity. You know, where you know, just churn it out just to be able to meet certain objectives. And some people see it more as a social, you know endeavor in trying to help people build more meaningful lives um, and being more responsible for themselves. But I mean, the question for me to you is that, can you engineer entrepreneurship in a society by looking at talent as a commodity? Because obviously, I mean, like you said, you, having the right talent, these people going through certain systems, coming out and then having the confidence to be able to start their own things as well. So can you engineer entrepreneurship in a society using talent or are there other, other, other factors that um, are largely dependent on that? Man, like I said earlier, it all falls back to talent, right? And it, it all comes back to how are we investing, how are we investing in, in that? You would see that uh, many of the, there's a huge competition for top talent, obviously, in the country today. You'll find many, many of the companies are struggling to, to keep some of their, their top people in a market like ours because they can't afford to pay what the global competitive prices for those talents are. And in a globally competitive marketplace, um, the talents can work anywhere they want, right? They can, in a remote workspace, somebody in Nigeria can be working in a, in a dev environment in, in Germany. Um, so how do, you, how do you stop that person from, from, making, from making such a move? So for me, I think that it has to go back to investing back in the pool and trying to churn out as many as, as many as we can, right? So there's no need talking about, hey, people, people are leaving or people are, are leaving the country for, to build outside or Nigerian developers can, Nigerian companies can afford to pay um, the Nigerian developers. We need to build more. We need, we need to invest more in those, in those resources. So, and that's what different companies are starting to do now. We're seeing the likes of Semicolon, we're seeing the likes of Decagon, trying to invest in that in that um, assembly line, if for the lack of a better word, 
where we are, we are able to invest in, in the core developers who form the backbone of many of the, of the ecosystem, uh, product managers who are learning in, in different companies. And it's a cycle, right? So they go through the companies who are hiring these people and, and, and have gotten successful by, by hiring this talent need to also invest back into the pool in building up new talent. And that's how ecosystems are really are really built. So I feel that the more people we can we can get into into the pool, and the more senior people we um, we keep having, the better the better for us as a as a whole eco as a whole ecosystem. So I think the onus is just to produce more, as opposed to complaining about um, the people leaving or not being able to afford certain talent. Great, thanks. So this would be similar to any of the other maybe um, industrial revolutions where maybe um, at the time where you had soldiers coming back from war and they needed to do certain things, that the skills they had learned, even the women, the engineering skills they learned were the things that were plowed back into building those economies, sure. you know, when after, after the, um, you know, the, the massacres of us. Thanks. Um, very good point. And there. Uh, if somebody was to ask you, what's your, like, what's the rule of thumb, you know, so what are the investment principles you follow? Every day, you know, I'm in different WhatsApp groups, as I'm sure you are, and you have people talking about trying to seek funding. They're trying to just get to that point where they have an MVP or they have some kind of prototype, something to show so they can stand in front of guys like you or guys and women like you who have the cash to back their, their ideas. Um, but what's that rule of thumb? What are the investment principles that you follow before you can invest in any startup? Um, for me, the first thing is I invest in the founder because I'm investing in the pre-seed and seed stage. That's the stage I typically get involved. So I'm investing first in the founder because it's the founder that's going to end up building the product, right? So it's first the founder. Do I like this person? Do I think this person has what it takes to, to solve this problem? What does this person know about this market? What nuanced view does this person have about this problem? And then more importantly, what has this person done before or what risk has this person taken on himself or herself in terms of trying to build out um, this company? Somebody is saying, okay, I'm, I'm trying to build out a company or start a company, but the person is still taking a sitting in a comfortable job in a bank, right? And the person is coming out to seek funding. The person, as I say, has not made any sacrifice for, his, for himself or herself to, to build out and take a risk. On, on this problem. So if you're not going to take a risk on yourself, why would any investor take a risk on you? So the first thing is to um, find entrepreneurs who are ready to bet on themselves first, um, who I believe are gritty, who I believe have the staying power to build things, and who I believe have a, some sense of unique view about the problem at hand. And then obviously, what's then, we talk about the product and then we talk about the market, right? How big, how big can this possibly be, right? If this guy gets it right, I think, our sweet spot, our Eureka moment is when you have a very, very super entrepreneur working in a, in a very, very large and interesting market that just has to be built, which is what obviously happened in the, in the pay stack, with the pay stack story. So um, that's really where it all comes back to the founder. That's the first person I'm, I'm betting on. Um, so if I like the founder, I'll most likely fund the company because you'll find out that in any case, most of the assumptions that the founder has made for the business would change. The product would also change, um, but the founder would not, would not likely change, right? So it's who, it's who that person is 
um, that you, have, you need to bet on early. So that's why obviously always bet on the founder. Okay, I mean, that makes so much sense. Yeah, because we've seen a lot of companies pivot from their original ideas, but, you know, oh, yes. and, we've, and we've seen some people, some founders who've moved on from one company to set up another one, and they keep getting the same people to back them. And it's, it's a level of consistency, like you said. I mean, I know you've had some successes, but um, do you want to tell us a bit about some of your failed investments or investments that you're not sure where they're going right now? <laughs> Well, you see, the thing too is that we don't talk about failures too much in our market, and because of that, we missed out. We miss out on some postmortem on on these companies, at least publicly. You find out that you just stop hearing from the founder, <laughs> or you just stop hearing getting certain updates, and then you see that the founder has appeared in a bank or in a telco <laughs> in another role <laughs> as a as a CEO or a, or a or a product manager, and then. Obviously, the company is gone. And you obviously, as an investor, you can already tell when, they, when there are problems, even before the company finally um, goes comatose. So, obviously, when you start, you don't start hearing from the founder, updates are not coming. And obviously, the founder is out there grinding because I've been there before, right? The founder is out there grinding, thinking it will happen. It will get better the next month and I'll be able to update. And then, obviously, it doesn't get better that next month and then it kicks the can down the road and so on. Um, so, I mean, there have been companies or there have been founders that have backed problems they were solving ended up not working. So, for example, I backed a company called Meditel, um, solving something in the healthcare space around drugs, efficacy and drug reminders. And it ended up not working. Um, but I still backed the same founder who is now doing something in the renewable energy space and he's, and he's going ahead with that. So, he comes back to me still backing the same, the same person. Um, so if I backed a company called Piggyvest um, today, but when they started out, they were doing something called Push CV, um, and then they pivoted to Piggyvest. So it depends. For me, it's why you have to back the team because the, the team um, would be able to move from one problem to pro- another problem, or from one problem, and from that problem finding a solution as they as they move along. So that's why the team is very important. I mean, great. I mean, I think you had a, a blog post not too long ago um, detailing some of these things. I had a laugh reading some of it, you know, but it was also very insightful. I was inspired and I, which I hope a lot of other investors are too, in, in you being able to come out and talk about some of these things that look, it's not every time that it works. And I remember one, one thing that you said about somebody that I think had also invested as well and then came to you and said, so what's going to happen now that I think my money is, is the money gone or something like that? Like, man, the money's gone, you know? And it's our realization that sometimes it's not everything that works, but it's an exercise we have to carry out if we are going to grow, grow the ecosystem, grow our environment in that sense. But one question I want to ask is, why do you think that some founders don't necessarily provide updates, even when they don't have the updates, when they don't come back to you or when you don't hear anything from them? Is it that they can't reach out to you okay. for help? Or is it that there's a rule that says don't go back to the investor for help? You must, you know, you must figure it out yourself. That kind of thing, like that. I, I don't understand that because just going quiet, it's almost like saying, you know, I don't have anybody else. I don't, I don't understand it enough, but I don't have anybody else to go through. Yeah, I think um, it's that whole. Uh, after all, you backed me to solve this problem, right? Um, and so I'm going to try and solve this problem by myself, and which is why. Many times, part of the value we provide, apart from just funding, is working with entrepreneurs um, through strategic type things, not tactical or not operational type things, right? 
or helping them open certain doors for partnerships and so on. So I think um, even on the investor side is to create that environment of being approachable. Um, but even at times when you even to create that environment of being approachable, um, the founders just, it's so neck deep in, in, in this whole journey that, and like I said, it kicks the can down, he or she kicks the can down the road to say, yes, things will get better and then things don't get better. And then obviously there might be some shame or there might be some guilt or there might be, you know how people tend, tend to look at failure in this part, which is why I said, yeah. um, we need to embrace it more and learn from that. So that's why I like how people like Jason are constantly sharing their journeys, sharing the problems yeah. they are facing. Because everybody then, and then when he does that, he then says everybody saying, yes, 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 it's true. But nobody else shared about it when they were going through it. So <laughs> I think people need to open up and, and share more because that's where we can, that way we can learn. I think, um, like somebody said, it's not failure um, unless you give up. You know, and sure. as long as you keep trying, it's not. So, and I think that that's the mindset we need to change in general there. Okay, so there are some unwritten rules, unwritten codes of investment. And like you said, you invest in the founder. There are some things that are not in any rule book that could you talk about some things that certain people, maybe some other things that you've seen out there for any founder or any would-be founder listening now that might be looking to raise some funding in terms of things that, you know, that investors watch out for. And so if, if you had you had a potential entrepreneur looking to raise money right now, um, what are maybe the one, two, three things you would tell them before they approach an investor? Okay, I think um, the first thing is is to do the research on the investor, right? Before you even um, before you even approach the investor, because what you tend to find too is um, there's a wrong investor entrepreneur matching in certain instances. What do I mean by that? An entrepreneur who is at the pre-seed or seed stage going to approach an investor who invests in only growth series A and growth type companies, right? And they're wondering why he got he or she got turned down. Obviously, there was a wrong investor to entrepreneur matching in terms of stage, right? So first, the research around the different investors um, for which stage is very, very important because that then determines who, who you should approach. And then obviously, once, you, once you're able to do that, um, like I said, is then for you to then show your, your unique knowledge about the problem or your unique approach to solving this problem. And you showing what you've done before in a similar path or what you've done before that gives you some standing to be able to tackle that problem and what risk you've taken on yourself. Investors obviously, obviously like, um, like, like to see that. And then obviously investors obviously want to see that that's level of dedication that you're ready to put your time to eat, sleep and drink this company. Um, um, and because that way they are putting their money and their trust in you and they want to believe that you're also all in 100%. Um, I think you should also do some research around talking to other investors. So when you found, once you found the right investor with the, to your stage mapping, you then have to talk to other companies that that investor has um, has worked with in the past to understand what their journey has been like with that investor because there's a tendency that many times founders see it as just um, a one-way dating game but it's a two-way dating game right um you should mm. you should did the investor the same way the investor is dating you so you should due diligence the investor the same way the investor is due diligence in you so that you don't end up you don't end up with the um in the wrong in the wrong space 
Another thing would be obviously uh, for the founders, don't give up too much too early um, in terms of equity down the line. And obviously don't, um, it might not sound too popular, but don't, don't over-raise um, in terms of those kind of crazy valuations that um, are overheated and then you <laughs> running and chasing that valuation at the end of the day because it can come down to bite you down the line. Doesn't sound like a good advice, but trust me, when it doesn't go well, it's, you then see a down round and you don't want that. So obviously I've seen some cap tables to where the founder in an act of desperation has given out 50, 60% of his company in the first raise. Um, the cap table is totally messed up that knowing that investor can even come in and even come in again. So um, so that's what I mean by don't give up too much too early um, because you would need that that room on the cap table down the line as you grow. Great. So, I mean, something just popped up now. I've seen it in a few places before. Would you back a single, a single entrepreneur or it has to be a team? I mean, I like teams more than anything else. Um, I would typically back mainly teams. I started a company as a team um, and I've seen the value of partnerships. Mm. So, and there's a reason why um, investors prefer teams to single founders. I mean, there have been some single excellent founders, right, who then hire um, some, maybe an operations person who then even sort of assumes the role of a, of a co-founder, um, but definitely not a single thing going in alone um, on this in this journey. So I would typically like teams, and I like teams that have a technical founder as part of the team, because that reduces um, the the raise amount that that is typically required at that precede or, or seed stage. So imagine if you were founding, you were investing in a in a team without a technical founder. Obviously, part of the money being raised would then have to go into hiring um, a dev shop or a, a dev team to, to work on it. For a team with a technical founder, the technical founder's contribution or equity obviously would be his technical skills in developing the core product at least to MVP stage. Okay, thanks. And then lastly, we're about rounding up now. This is more of a, some might see it as a trick question, but it isn't. It's like, what's the inspiration you know, behind certain things? So is investing in a startup an opportunity or a risk? And the reason why I say so is that a lot of Nigerian investors or, you know, people with the capital to invest have stayed, have stayed clear of investing in local startups, especially if they're not businesses that are deemed to be traditional in nature. Um, and they see a lot of um, tech-based businesses as just like flashes in the pan, you know, uh, it's either because they don't understand the models or whatever it is like that. But And then they hear a lot of these stories of people that um, either disappear after raising money or the business goes bust for whatever reason, you know, in that sense. So just from your own perspective, I mean, you've made good bets and you've made some that aren't so great, but would you consider it an opportunity or more of a risk? I mean, it's, it's, it's both, right? Um, every single investment is a risk. Every single one you're making, even if you end up not investing cash, your time and all that, um, and there's an opportunity cost for all that. So there's there's obviously a risk in in investing for um, for sure. So for me, um, I always tell people to that once I invest at the pre-seed and seed stage, because most times most of these companies are not going to make it anyway. My first disposition is that um, the money is gone, right? So you're not investing school fees money or house rent money 
in startups, right? Um, because it's very high risk and um, everything can, can go to zero. But obviously, we are optimizing for the upside and that's the opportunity, right? When it works out well, um, there's a huge return payout that covers any of those possible losses. And the whole, the whole game we're playing is obviously to have more of those upsides, right? And optimize for most of that. But then it's also a numbers game because you need to take more risks. Um, and that's why you see that um, um, many of the early stage and seed stage investors backing as many companies as possible because it ends up being a numbers game. Yeah, and I guess that if you back, let's say 10, and only two, sometimes the reward from maybe one or two of them can sometimes cover the, the investments you've made in the other ones at times and makes it more rewarding. Yes. Thank you very much for your time, um, Olimide. It's been a it's been a huge pleasure um, chatting with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I've had fun doing this. Yeah, I truly, truly appreciate this. Um, this has been our edition of Blue Talks. Um, until next time, bye bye. Blue Talks, brought to you by Stambic IBTC. So my sister just texted me now, telling me how much she's missed me. <laughs> Well, I know what she truly misses, so I open my Stanbic IBTC app and say to it, Hey, I want to transfer 5,000 naira to Funke. Done. And my post just asked me what the highest price stock is right now. Huh. I can't fold my hand, though. So I open my Stanbic IBTC app from the comfort of my home and figure it out. Got it! You be the hero. Upgrade and take control of your finances with the new Stambic IBTC mobile app. Download or upgrade your Stambic IBTC mobile app on Google Play or Apple Store to experience seamless voice banking, stockbroking, insurance, and more from the safety of your home. From your one-stop financial services partner, Stambic IBTC. It can be.